0: Hello everybody and welcome to The Conversation, I'm David Schuster. Has America reached a tipping point? A point of no return because of the deep partisanship in the United States? Well, there's an interesting new perspective on this based on a new fiction thriller book that is out. It is from David Fisher. He's an author who has had more than two dozen books on the New York Times bestseller list. Most of them have been nonfiction. He has ghostwritten or co-authored books with Donald Trump and Tommy Lasorda and William Shatner to name just a few. But his latest is called The Executive Order, again, a fiction thriller. Um, David, first of all, before I get into the book, what prompted you to want to write a fiction book after all these you know, nonfiction things that you've written through the years?
1: Well, actually, I've done some fiction before. In fact, purely coincidentally, I'm sitting in a beach house right now that was paid for by the movie made from my first novel which they're showing this week on TCM. <laughs> so and then I've done another novel of mine based on a true story they announced last week that Benedict Cumberbatch is going to star in the movie version well, of. My
0: apologies, uh, that and not being <laughs> totally up to date on, on your career, but one of your, you're prominently known, at least lately, for having ghostwritten a book Absolutely. with Donald Trump. How much of that experience of working with Donald Trump and the deep partisanship in the United States prompted you to write the executive order? And give us a little bit of a summary about the book.
1: Well, actually, what happened is a publisher came to me a couple of years ago and asked me to write a sequel to the 1935 bestseller, It Can't Happen Here. Um, and the truth is, this I believe at least this country is in trouble. And whether you lean to the right or lean to the left, whatever we're doing is not working. And we need to find a way of getting along and finding that middle ground. And the concept of the book is what can happen if we don't. Um, And many years ago, I had a conversation with Alan Dershowitz. And Alan Dershowitz told me that the biggest danger facing this country today is that the President of the United States has been given more than 700 special powers by Congress. And the only one that was ever repealed was the right to put Japanese citizens in internment camps. Mm -hmm. Other than that, they're all on the books. And under the right circumstances, the president can use these to take control of the country. And that's what this book is about.
0: And in the circumstances of your book, it features an Ian Reitman. He's an independent senator who pledges to heal the partisan divide in the United States. He's an independent senator. There's a series of terrorist attacks, and he starts issuing executive orders that chip away at our constitutional freedoms. And then there is this um, journalist named Rolly Stone, uh, and I presume that's a play on Rolling Stones. Who who discovers this? And and tell us, I mean, what what is it about each character that uh, that you're drawing upon?
1: One of the things that I love about novels is they bring you into worlds that you've never been in. And a close friend of mine has spent his life in a wheelchair. And so Raleigh Stone, the Rolling Stone, is a wounded warrior who is in a wheelchair. He was a special operator turned digital journalist. His wheelchair which he refers to as mighty chair. Isn't just an ordinary chair, it's sort of a tricked out chair. But everything that chair does, you could do today. And the truth is, it literally takes you on a ride. And this has all the thrills and cliffhangers that we would expect from an action adventure book with a political background. It's a warning, but it's entertainment.
0: Was it cathartic to you to, to write this, given how you see our political divide and the dangers that are out there?
1: Well, you know, I've done books with people on both sides of the political spectrum. Beyond Trump, I did a book with Glenn Beck, and it was How Can We Get Along? If We Don't Get Along, it was the, a nonfiction book about the same subject. I did Ann Romney's book about learning to live um, with Cerebral Palsy. And uh, and uh, on the other hand, I did a book with um, a guy named Robert Wexler, who was a congressman from Florida and at that time the most liberal member of Congress. And it's about how Congress works or in fact doesn't work. So I've done the whole political spectrum and I love politics. Um, and I understand, the hypocrisy of it, and I try to use that as satire. There's a lot of humor in the book. Um, uh, there's hopefully some poignancy. Um, you know, hopefully there's a lot that you can't put it down. You got to lay up it lay on the beach and continue reading. Um, but uh, what I what I like is that it takes you into the world of the disabled in a way I believe uh, no book has done before, and it makes our our character an action adventure hero. Well, one of the things about the book
0: that I so appreciate is, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different theories as to how we've gotten here. And one of the theories that I've long espoused because of my experience in broadcasting cable news, is that the broadcast media is part of the problem. Because we will put on at least in the mainstream media. You'll put on the the flamethrowers, the bomb throwers, the people who are in the middle ground, the people who want to negotiate and making incremental changes or reach out across the aisle, that doesn't make for great television. What makes for great television are the bombastic, crazy people. And when people are given an incentive that well, if you get on cable television and broadcast news more often, you'll be able to raise more money for your political race. There's a perverse incentive for people to be extreme. Um, How much of that resonates
1: with you? Well, I, believe that we still haven't figured the Internet into the political process yet. And I think we are adapting what already the structure that already exists to the Internet instead of using the Internet for what it is. And what the Internet has done is enabled us to form into tribes, into niches. And so politicians can appeal to a niche now, which they never had to before. So they had to appeal to a much wider spectrum of people. Now you can go after your people, and the Internet allows you to do it. Is there something still glamorous in your estimation about
0: journalism? And I may be answering the question myself here because clearly you take a figure in your book, as you mentioned in a wheelchair, but you glamorize him and his sort of a determination to serve the greater good. Is
1: that still possible in journalism, at least across the mainstream? Well, as someone who was trained in journalism, I hope so. Um, one of the things that we need to figure out how to do is separate truth and not truth. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that on our computers, on the television, it looks the same. And it sounds the same. And so you can, um, there no longer is that need in journalism to necessarily to fact check over and over and over. And so we're in this world where truth and untruth have the same weight. And the dangers of that as we write about in the book are incredible, incredible. You can say anything you want and you can justify it and there are people who will believe you. I mean- I'm sorry. Trust
0: is a is a big theme in your book, not only for the main character and who he can trust to try to tell these truths, but also how the audience can trust information. Um, are there lessons from the book, or things that, in terms of how we all decide what to trust and what to believe, that come through in the book that you think um, are are good examples for for real society today?
1: Boy, that's the question, isn't it? And um, what happens? Is we each have with the internet allows us to do is reinforce what we already believe, and that's a very dangerous thing. By watching only Fox or only CNN and MSNBC, you are constantly getting reinforced what you already believe, and you nod your head and say, "I'm right," and I knew I was right, and they're wrong. And the whole concept of the book Executive Order is what happens when, what's the extension of that, the far extension of that, what's the danger of it? Where do we go? And and the scary part is no matter how much our rights become taken away from us, there are people who are going to support that. There are people who are going to nod their head and say, "Yeah, that works," because that guy is not getting whatever he needs. And that
0: speaks right to that speaks right to Donald Trump. In your estimation, is Donald Trump aware? Do you think of the of the damage and the dangerous course that largely he's put us on, or does he just see this as well? It's just sort of his own sort of game, and people will get over it.
1: Donald Trump is the most fascinating combination of narcissism and insecurity I have ever met. It is mind boggling in person to spend time with him for exactly that reason. And so whatever feeds the ego is what he accepts. And we've seen the result. And you can either say I like it or I don't like it. But I mean, that's up to each of us individually. But it's it's it. it, I think it's dangerous, and I think it's not based. You know, when people when I always read that Donald Trump has strategy, I always laugh. His strategy is whatever he is thinking at that moment. David Fisher is an author. His
0: latest book is the thriller, the fiction thriller, The Executive Order. It's something of a cautionary tale for all of us. And David, so good of you to join us on the conversation. Thanks for doing this and good luck to you. Well, thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. And welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. About a decade ago, I had a remarkable experience, perhaps one of the most rewarding in my career. And that is, I worked for a community radio station in Washington DC. It was called We Act Radio and our mantra was, do something. It was all about empowering people to be able to change issues in Washington D.C. through better understanding of them. Well, fast forward to today, and I am super excited to be talking to Craig Garvey. He's in Los Angeles, and he's founded something called Rise Together. It is a nonprofit that aims to restore power to people of Los Angeles through informed educational messaging. Sound familiar, right? Wow, this is amazing stuff. Ah, Craig, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for having me, David, it's so great,
0: tell me, first of all, what prompted you to do this?
2: You know, I have a long history of being involved with nonprofits, and in my day job, I focus on the strategy that's needed to help create a better world, to reverse engineer solutions for major corporations and high profile individuals, and that all coalesced into the fact that LA can feel like it's sliding off of a cliff into an abyss with so many crises. And so I decided that I had to do something about it.
0: Well, and what you're trying to do is essentially get more civic engagement on issues like homelessness and policing and affordability and crime. So there's, some, there's some argument and I would run up to this 10 years ago, people say, well, it's not enough for people just to know about these issues. There has to be some way for people to be actively involved. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. But there's no way for people to be actively involved if they don't know about these issues. The, you know, it comes down to the fact that Lagos, Nigeria has a higher voter participation rate than Los Angeles. That's unacceptable. And people don't participate because they don't believe that anything's ever going to change if they do. So we've got to change that belief first. We have to convince the people of LA and of every city in this country that things can change when they take action. They have to believe in change before we can even talk about what actions we want them to take.
0: And to get people's attention, you have a series of billboards that have been up across Los Angeles. Tell me a little bit about the billboard
2: messaging and effort that you've undertaken. Absolutely. Well, one of the things we've noticed is that people can feel overwhelmed by the crises that confront them. Homelessness is out of control, affordability is intolerable, crime is skyrocketing. But giving them facts, real facts that they can talk about, it helps anchor them. It helps them feel less overwhelmed and more like, okay, Now I really want to do something about it. So we're running billboards, digital, social, direct mail, email to get people engaged, signing up for our grassroots movement to change the city. It's a fact along with the important tagline, it doesn't have to be this way. We've got to convince people that it doesn't have to be this way. They don't have to be overwhelmed. They just need to believe that change is possible. And then the rest is a simple walk after that.
0: And what's been the response to it doesn't have to be this way? How much traffic, how much attention are you getting from people who first hear about you or see you because of the billboards?
2: A lot. The answer is it feels like we've tapped into a well of discontent with hope and optimism. People want to believe that something better is possible. And so we've signed up thousands of people for our movement in just the first two weeks. We reached tens of thousands of people. We've got a six month campaign with our goal of signing up 200,000 people in LA to become the largest grassroots movement in the city of everyday Angelinos. And people really do want to believe that it doesn't have to be this way. And they are thrilled and embracing and throwing all kinds of events and outreach. And so we're thrilled with the growth and the reach.
0: And when people are part of this grassroots movement, is there a movement primarily to get the right people elected who will deal with these issues? Or is part of the movement also about people themselves taking active steps, never mind just voting and their civic engagement, but active steps to do what they can to try to solve some of these issues?
2: Absolutely, we say we're here to meet everyone with whatever level of commitment they're ready to do. The answer is so few people vote in Los Angeles, 95% of the city's population didn't vote for the current mayor, that's unacceptable. So voting is the first step, informed voting is the first step. But for people who want to do more, we have so many options, rallies and community engagements and all of these different opportunities between now and our upcoming municipal elections. Where we do have the opportunity to change the tide in the city, including yes, The types of city leaders that we want in office.
0: I remember somebody years ago in Washington, D.C., telling me, look, you know, an issue like crime is so complex to solve that we should just give up on everybody except the youngest generation and focus strictly on them. But I've also heard the other side of the coin that, no, it's actually not as complicated as we like to, to make it seem.
2: Where do you come down on this? It is not as complicated as we like to make it seem. And I mean this in the nicest possible way, but the city leadership of Los Angeles like to make it seem complicated because they've all been in office for over 20 years. Some of them have been in office longer than I've been alive. The reality is that it's not that complicated to take proven effective solutions from cities around America to reduce homelessness. 18 cities in America have moved to functional zero long-term homelessness. We can do that too. There are cities across America that are putting into place regulations that reduce crime, that bring affordability. It's actually very simple. It takes some guts. It takes some willingness to piss some people off. But you can do more and it's not that complicated.
0: Is there one particular solution that you've seen from another city that really jumps out to you as something that you haven't been able to implement yet in Los Angeles,
2: but you would like to try? Absolutely, I think most importantly, Los Angeles is under the same zoning it was in 1946. They've been trying to rezone the city for 10 years and haven't even rezoned one community. It makes it impossible for us to build responsibly, ethically. It makes us impossible to help people be able to long term afford their rents. Because we're we not building anything new in the right ways anywhere we go. So in affordability, there are proven solutions around this country. But Zoning is the first one, and people just aren't even aware. Nineteen forty-six is unacceptable. That's remarkable.
0: What are some of the greatest challenges that you're facing as people, you know, hear about you and they're sort of interested? Is there a difficulty in not only, you know, once people come into the system and say, "Okay, there's something I like to do," is there a difficulty in getting them to follow through?
2: Uh right, you know there are a lot of enthusiastic people who have never been involved in politics who are signing up for movement and that's great. For people who are aware of the things of going on in the city there is a lot of skepticism. They have been burned so many times by leaders simply not showing up with promises. There's a lot of people who accuse us of being a front for someone and the reality is we're funded by everyday people who give $25 or $2,500. And so overcoming that skepticism is important, but really the biggest challenge is just reaching as many people as possible in a far flung metropolis. You know, we need and continue to raise more resources every day to get the word out, to get people engaged and sharing our message. And that's the biggest challenge, but it's also a good one because it's solvable.
0: You mentioned the level of distrust that exists in so many areas of Los Angeles and many big cities. And a lot of that, of course, is in the minority areas, Hispanic areas, African Americans who have long been burned, for example, by police or felt like they don't get a fair shake. What do you say to somebody who comes to you and says, look, I agree that there's something we need to do about crime and policing. But I'm frustrated because I've worked my entire life and nothing has changed.
2: That's exactly what we're confronted with in Los Angeles. People believe that nothing's ever going to change. But we have a unique opportunity that is unprecedented in American history here in LA coming into 2022. Because of a date change in election, instead of 400,000 people voting in a city of 4 million, 1.2 million people will be voting for the 800,000 of them for the first time in their lives. No city in America has ever faced That influx of voters, new voters will outnumber old voters by a two to one margin. So what I say to all of them is that yes, I can understand your skepticism. But the reality is we have one shot to flood the system with votes for change and that's what makes this possible.
0: What have you heard from city leaders, city council members, the establishment political
2: figures in Los Angeles? They are less than thrilled. I've been told we need to work with the system, that this is confrontational, that this is unnecessary. To which I say, if 95% of the people in this city did not vote for its current mayor, it's definitely necessary.
0: Now, you mentioned that your day job, you spend a lot of time as a marketing and strategy expert. What would you say is the greatest lesson, whether it's Los Angeles or any city across the United States, can learn about marketing and strategy as they try to implement a grassroots
2: campaign? Absolutely, it's not about what you want to say to the public. It's about what the public's ready to hear. Too often, it's about what they, what they need to hear. Too often we focus on, oh, well, here's the policy we want to sell in without thinking about whether people are ready to hear it and engage. That's the whole point of our campaign is we're meeting people where they are, not how we want them to be. In marketing, we have to reach people with messages that they're ready to embrace, that they can understand. And instead of focusing on what we want to say, it's what they want to say and what they're ready to hear.
0: So for people who let's say don't drive and aren't gonna see the billboards, what are the ways that, they, that the message tries to reach them?
2: Absolutely, we're across every channel, not just billboards. So social at rise together LA on every social media outlet, digital advertising, and they can sign up by email at together.la So we're aiming to sign up 200,000 people by this November to create the largest movement to bring change in the city. So all kinds of ways to sign up on social on our website everywhere.
0: And is there also information and advice in terms of the newer political candidates who are responding well to what you're trying to do so that people can be educated voters and say, okay, my first step, I'm going to vote. But I'm going to vote for somebody who's going to try to implement something
2: different. Absolutely, we're focused on nonpartisan facts and bringing every fact to the table, including about all of the candidates in the field. The best thing that we could have is a competitive field, and we'll have a very public and open, honest, and transparent process to help educate voters about who those are without any bias.
0: Grant Grivey, he is a strategy and marketing expert, and he's also the founder of Rise Together. Again, it's a nonprofit that aims to essentially engage people in Los Angeles in more civic opportunities through education, through information. It's a really remarkable grassroots campaign, Craig, that you've started. And thanks for joining us on the conversation. We appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much for having me. We can
0: save this city.